This episode is part of a special collaboration between ACM ByteCast and AMIA For Your Informatics Podcast, a joint podcast series for the Association of Computing Machinery, the world's largest educational and scientific computing society, and the American Medical Informatics Association, the world's largest medical informatics community. In this new series, we talk to women leaders, researchers, practitioners, and innovators who are at the intersection of computing research and practice to apply AI to healthcare and life science. They share their experiences in their interdisciplinary career path, the lessons learned for health equity, and their own visions for the future of computing. Hello and welcome to the ACN AMIA joint podcast series. This joint podcast series aims to explore the interdisciplinary field of medical informatics, where both the practitioners of AI ML solution builders and the stakeholders in the healthcare ecosystems take interest. I am the co-host here, Dr. Sabrina Shea, with the Association of Computing Machinery by CAS series. With me today is Dr. Adela Grano from IMIA for Your Informatics Podcast. We have the pleasure of speaking with our new series guest today, Dr. Moore Pallet. Thank you so much for joining this podcast. And today we have a very special guest, Dr. Moore Pellet. Thank you so much, Moore, for joining us today. Thank you, Adela. And thank you, Sabrina. It's wonderful to have you here. And Moore is a full professor of information systems, and she's also the head of the University of Haifa's Data Science Research Center. She's the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Biomedical Informatics. She's also an international fellow of ACME, the American College of Medical Informatics. She's also a fellow of the International Academy of Health Sciences Informatics. Moore's research focuses on clinical guidelines-based decision support systems for both patients and physicians. She was the lead developer of the computer interpretable guideline language GLEEF 3, and she was the recipient of the 2005 AMIA New Investigator Award. Her current projects focus on supporting disease management for patients with multimorbidity and on applying psychobehavioral theories to engage patients in their health. So, very impressive CV, more. And I, I was just trying to recall when we met, and that was in 2008. You were at Stanford. That was quite a while ago. (laughs) And and you were a visiting scholar, and I was doing my postdoc, and I was just starting to learn about computer interpretable guidelines, and you were already a well-renowned expert on that. I have just finished my PhD in computer science. I honestly knew very, very little about clinical informatics. And you were just such a wonderful mentor, so patient with me, so generous with your knowledge and expertise. And you truly play a very key role in helping me to apply computer science to medicine. I will always be grateful um, to you for that. Thank you. And I I do believe that you have a very similar professional journey. So you Mm -hmm. train in the field of information systems, and then you were very successful merging it with medicine. So... We wanted to do this podcast so you could share with our audience mm-hmm. how was that journey and um, why did you decide to work in the intersection of information systems and medicine? 
Yeah, so thank you so much, Adela, for your very kind introduction. I, I always enjoy working with you. So actually, I think my journey even started before that time, you know, a very long time ago. Even when I was in high school, I had to choose what would be my focus in high school. And I, I was always in between math and biology, and I couldn't really decide. I just went my best friend. Uh, she really liked biology, so I, I chose biology. But I did uh, a lot of extracurriculums that had to do with programming, PL1 and Pascal and you know, different languages when I was 12, 13 years old and, and throughout high school. It's always, I, I liked both things. And then I actually started learning first uh, electrical engineering in the hope that I would one day go into graduate school to study biomedical engineering. It's something, a concept I knew about since I was uh, 17 years old and really fascinated me. And I knew the road there was very long and you have to start with the electrical engineering. Only I didn't like it. And it, the studies were difficult. I was the only woman in class with uh, hundreds of uh, guys. And it was really hard for me on my own. And I decided to move to biology. So I don't know if you knew that, but I have two. My undergraduate and my master's are in biology. I didn't know that. <laughs> yes. And so, you know, after like a couple of semesters, I moved to biology. I was really, really good at that. I even got um, a national award from uh, the president of uh, Israel at that time. Wow, that's and, impressive. <laughs> yeah, but ever, I, I started my master's and after two months, I knew that lab life is not for me. I was working with radioactive materials. I started to get phobias and I survived the master's, but I knew that I had to do, you know, another transition. So I, I thought, what should I study? Computer science. And it was back then in uh, 1994 and bioinformatics was not really an established field at that time. The human genome project was ongoing. It really fascinated me. And I wanted to find a way to go into that field. Uh, I started to go and interview in the computer science and in information system department. And I, I thought that because I'm really good at organizing things, I would be better in information systems and, you know, going into databases rather than the algorithm side. So I started the PhD there. And when I uh, was about to graduate, I actually heard uh, a talk by Yuval Shachal, uh, who is uh, another very important Israeli medical informatics uh, scientist, and he was at Stanford. And that's why I, I came to know that there is a program for medical informatics at Stanford. And I applied uh, to Mark Musen for a postdoc, and I ended up working with uh, Ted Shortliff and uh, Samson too on the um, uh, Glyph project that, that you know. So it was kind of a long and winding road of things that interested me plus chance. That's a great story. Thank you for sharing. <laughs> sure. Yeah, it's highly impressive to hear the story always uh, for our audience here in the intersection of AMIA and ACM, right? And to benefit them a little bit more, let's also understand a bit more that how you lead, what leads you to your current roles at University Haifa and also as the, the chief editor 
of the JBI. Are there any specific pressing issues you are facing now? You feel、mm-hmm. our audience. Yeah, so I, I was born in Israel and in the city called Haifa, and I always wanted to go back. I, my postdoc was for four years, and my family, you know, was my immediate family. My husband and my kids were with me when I did the postdoc, but I always wanted to go back.、Uh, were my parents, my cousins, my uncles, so I, I went back to Israel, and I, I got a position at the Department of Information Systems, which was very new. I was.、Uh, I think the second person who joined the faculty, so so that was a, a good opportunity for me to be、uh, in a leadership position right away at at my department, which was also something that I, I fancied. And the postdoc with、uh, Ted Shortliff, he was one of the founders of the medical informatics field. It made a very big impact at my career. Ted was the editor in chief for the Journal of Biomedical Informatics for twenty years, and he invited me first to join the editorial board, and later become an associate editor, deputy editor, and finally I became the editor chief that replaced Ted. And I'm so happy to. Follow his leadership. You cannot really replace Ted because he has done a lot for our field. But you can try to follow his footsteps. And I'm very, very grateful to to him, to many other people like Samson too, and Mark Newson, Vimla Patel, Bob Greenus, that really helped me shape my my career in a way that I I can it can be very fulfilling and have an impact on others people's lives as well. So. What is the pressing issues that I I face now with JBI? Some of it is really to educate the researchers about what we're seeking in our journal. So the Journal of Biomedical Informatics has a big emphasis on research methods, the novel methodologies that are. Specific to biomedical informatics and are also translational to medicine. So it's not just applying existing machine learning algorithms to cool data sets. It's starting with a question that、uh, clinicians face or biologists face, and trying to see what methods are already there and why they're not working, and can we come up with a new method that is generalizable and could be applied. In more than one case, and then explain it very well and very clearly to the the readers when you write a paper, and also suggest、uh, how it will fit into the clinical workflow, and have a clinical collaborator that would、uh, second the, this opinion that that you have. So you have to validate it in some way. So it's hard to to reach the audience. I actually have to desk reject many papers because they don't follow this lead, and I try to explain it in every every time I make a decision. And also with other colleagues, we co-authored an editorial about what we're seeking in machine learning. Based、um, methods paper for JBI, and just to explain what is there that we we are seeking and what doesn't make it for for our journal. So I'm I'm inviting all of you to to look it look it up. Another thing that I, I focus on in in JBI is I try to think what are the the new topics that our community should be targeting. And I try to invite people to write、uh, methodological reviews, to write new research 
papers, and also to have a new special issue call for papers. And I will tell you more about it uh, later on in the, in the interview. I will, I will tell you about one of the upcoming special issues that I, I would really love to get submissions for. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Maura. And it brings me memories. I remember our first paper together was at, uh, we submitted to JVI. And I remember you just explaining me exactly what you explained to the audience <laughs> now. <laughs> so it brings me memory. So let's continue a little more talking about your journey and how you combine information systems and medicine. So what would you recommend to those who want to start to work in an interdisciplinary field? Were there some early career moves that you found helpful and you would like to share? And especially if you have any advice for women. Yes, I, I think that's a great question. Uh, I think there are many, many routes to achieve what you want to do. And you don't know right away what you want to do. So you need to be very open-minded and and very trustful of, of your own abilities to, to say to yourself, I can do it. And there is some pathway I will find to do something that will be rewarding and fulfilling. For me, it was different degrees. So, you know, I, I, I told you my journey. I, I started with electrical engineering. I went to biology. Then I went to information systems. Then I heard that there was something called medical informatics. And, and that was like really the holy grail for me, but I didn't know about it right away. I, I was stuck with the, this vision of biomedical engineering, which I, I never went in that way. So, you know, don't be afraid is one advice. And, you know, work on something that you really, really find engaging and important and where you have uh, a chance to be really good at. And you don't know until you try. And I think everything you do in, in your pathway makes you a unique individual with a unique experience that you can leverage for making interesting and, and novel research. And when you step into a multidisciplinary field, you can do it at different stages of your career. So if you do it in very early, you can have another degree. But later on, you don't really go back after your professor and you say, okay, now I'm going to do another undergraduate degree. Not many people actually don't know anyone who did that. So what you can do is work with collaborators who know the field, the other field that you don't know, and they are experts in the other field. And then you start to do multidisciplinary research with those people. You educate yourself at the very basics, you know, by, by reading, by hearing talks. And you engage with these other uh, professionals and ask a lot of questions and learn to speak their language and come up with very interesting questions that are very important to answer. And you work together and you have to spend a lot of time to, to reach a good communication. So the thing for me was to find people that I like to work with. So it's, it's first of all people. It's not, you know, researchers. It's people that you somehow find a good connection with, a good fit. You like them as, as persons. And then you explore together and it takes uh, a, a lot of time. You cannot just uh, say, I will work one month and it will be over. It's something that you, you will probably do for a long period of time. And I found that I really, really like to collaborate. I collaborate with you, Adela, on several papers. And I do, you know, in other ways too, you know, conferences. And it doesn't have to be just research. 
Uh, it can also be management, you know, to, to co-organize an event or to, to work together in, on an editorial board. And all of these things make research and life very interesting. You asked me about women. Do I think it's different? I think it is because I think that one of the things that are necessary, although, you know, we have Zoom and we have teleconferencing, it's really, really important to meet people in person in physical space. And for that, we have conferences or we have visits, like when you came uh, to Stanford for a visit. I think that can make a connection last for a very long time. And I think women, sometimes it's difficult for them to travel. They uh, sometimes have children and they have to have a very supportive family to supportive husband, supportive parents. That's how it's been for me. So, you know, I always make a list of what everyone has to do to replace me. And they cannot do without the list, but I find ways and I am replaceable. So I think, you know, women would benefit from, from going abroad and, and I encourage them to do so. Yeah, we That's should great advice. <laughs> we should definitely have another workshop on this kind of 50-50 responsibility sharing for women. <laughs> yeah. And some of the, our audience here are already in their mid-career, especially in medical informatics. Well, a lot of us are pursuing this interdisciplinary career in the middle of medicine and information systems. So did you have uh, more advice to share for those yeah. mid-career. Yeah, so I think mid-career is uh, often challenging because sometimes you kind of uh, think that what you did for the past 20 years is no longer in the very focus. You, know, you started when it was very hype and now it's now not hype anymore and there's a different hype. Do you really want to to join the the celebration? And sometimes you're not able to do it by your own. I mean, you, you get some, some exposure, but you know you will not be a leader in in a new field uh, very easily. So some of the things, these management opportunities are really great. You can get involved in, in committees. They can be university-wide con- committees or national committees or even international committees. AMIA has a lot of uh, these committees and ACME does too. And you get a lot of exposure to new topics, to new people, and you you hear a lot of points of view. And then you can go and implement some of these ideas in your local environment. I had the, the opportunity. That's I think it's a good story. I will tell it. So I, I was on sabbatical, I think six years ago, again at Stanford. And the dean asked me, he called me on WhatsApp and he said, can I talk to you? I know you're on sabbatical, but we want to set up a new data science uh, undergraduate program. And it will be multidisciplinary between the three departments of computer science, information systems, and statistics. And no one can get the departments to talk to each other and to agree. Can you do it? And and I was up for the challenge. And I started really researching, you know, what are other programs that uh, are in different places in the world? What do they teach? What are, what are the essentials of data science? And 
what is available in the different departments. And I, I, I worked on that. And, and then I was known in the university to be an expert, although, you know, my training is not really in machine learning. I took a course on, on neural networks when I was a PhD student, but that's about it. And, you know, I collaborated with experts, but I'm not an expert myself. I am part of let's say the life cycle of data science I'm certainly a part of, and I'm expert on, on, on some of those parts, but not in the middle part that's really the, the big hype. But uh, having had a reputation that at the university that I set up this program, then I started to get uh, opportunities also from on national level. I was invited to different committees, and that's how I uh, ended up founding the the Center for Research on, on Data Science for the entire university. So this is all the departments in the university and all the faculties. And it's a center with 55 faculty members. And it's about research, but it's not my research. It's the research of these people. And my challenges there is how to help them form collaborations and how to so make them capable of forming the, the collaborations and how to motivate them to to work on multidisciplinary projects. And I think it's fascinating because, you know, you have to invent methods of how to get people to work together. So it's not exactly informatics, but it's still very interesting and, and novel, at least to me, because it's not something I did before. Well, thank you so much for sharing that story, more. It was really interesting. And talking about expertise, you are a world-renowned expert in knowledge-based clinical decision support system, which is an area of AI applied to medicine. And, you know, unfortunately, recently, there has been a lot of discussion about bias in AI. Yes. So health equity, it's a very relevant topic, no? so, topic. So we wanted to know from you, what is health equity to you and what is the most pressing issue? Yeah, so that's a great question. And that's, you know, remember that I told you that I'm going to tell you about a new call for papers, uh, a new special issue that uh, we just uh, opened the call for JBI. And the deadline is in October 2023. So health equity is, is very important. And at first, I thought it only had technical issues because, you know, I'm a technical person, I'm in medical informatics, in the methods, and I thought there is the fair data sharing. So, you know, how to have the, first of all, the data being representative of all populations. And then when you get the data set, how can you share it with other people in, in the way that you actually explain the semantics of what is in the data set, how it was collected, and so it has to be accessible and, and findable and reusable and interoperable. So the, this, this is the acronym for FAIR. All of these things are, are, are very technical. Then there is another side about you want the models to be explainable. So when the public or a decision maker wants to look at the results of these models of AI, they need to understand in a way that, that people understand, not you know a mathematical equation. We want to understand what the model actually learned. What is this knowledge that the model knows and, and how can we 
say it and articulate it in a way that people can understand it and can really capture the main attributes of the logic of, of the model. But that's another technical aspect. So quite recently, and that was the motivation for the special issue, I got an email from a reader. And the reader of one of the papers that just came out, it was a, pa- a paper about natural language processing and a technical paper as well. And this person, his name is Professor Jonathan Herring, and he's from the UK. And he's actually a professor of law. But he deals with equity and, and fairness in the medical field. And he was upset with the paper. He wrote to me and he said... The paper uses offensive language. It talks about mental retardation. And this is not the term that we, we should be using. And then I thought, well, the medical records have this. This is, I looked it up immediately in, in SNOMED CT and I saw that this is the official term. So this is the term that will be found in the medical databases in the electronic health records. So you, you cannot get away from using the term. But then I thought, you know, he, he pointed me to one of his papers about people giving names to genes. And in the genes, there will also be the name of the disease and how this can be discriminating for a person who wants to get insurance. Or And I started thinking, well, he has a point. And I looked at the paper again, and I, I looked at some of the examples that were there. And I also consulted with the authors and also with the reviewers of the paper. And no one did anything that was offensive. That was for, for a given. I, I know ev- all of these people are very good people. But I looked again and I saw that their example was about a young woman with mental retardation. I thought, as a woman, I was a little bit upset. Why did the example have to be a woman? And maybe this is, in fact, a sentence that appeared in one of the clinical notes, but it kind of still upset me. And I I want to have a special issue in which we address not just the technical issues, but these psychological, sociological, soft issues that maybe we can educate uh, our readers and our the scientists who write papers on how also to use examples in in writing. You know, what are the case studies that we we present as an example? And what language do we use? And that's a part of of the equity and part of of thinking about ourselves as as, uh, people, as individuals, as as being fair and as as being equal and not uh, discriminate, even if you don't intend to discriminate and for sure no one intended to do no harm there, you have to be more aware and more sensitive. So this is the part that really engaged me and together with uh, Shiam Weissman, and uh, with uh, Yuan Lu, I asked them to join me and to help me in uh, co-organize this uh, special issue for JBI. And I really hope that uh, the audience and other people as well will submit uh, papers uh, to that special issue. As someone who is having thinking about AI essays every day now, <laughs> I can vouch for the timeliness and the importance of this issue. This is really AI is the, the new kid on the block, right? But no one knows how to trust it until you know better about all these guardrails that should be put around it and how do we how should we increase the health equity with all these issues considered. ACM Bycast and AMIA FYI Podcasts are available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and other services. 
If you're enjoying this episode, please subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite platform. That leads us to the discussion about also in your current role of the chief editor of JBI, you have done a lot in promoting equity through mm-hmm. increasing the diversity in the representation of your board, right? Uh, can you also yes. talk a little bit about that and also more in general, like uh, in this field between medicine and computer science, information systems, what did you see as essential for us to do together? Mm-hmm. Yes, thank you for the question. So I really wanted to increase uh, equity in many respects. I think many uh, times people thought, think about men and women, and I do too, and this was one of the parameters, but it's, it was only one of the parameters that I wanted to increase. And right now, actually, we're 50-50, 50% women, 50% Men, uh, if you look at the editorial board plus associate editors, I'm really happy about that. I could do it fairly quickly within two years by trying to recruit each time more women than men and also increasing the size of the editorial board. So that allowed me to recruit more women uh, in total. But it's not only just diversity in in women. It's also diversity, for example, in the areas of expertise, which is very natural. So you have to have um, on the editorial board people who are experts in all the the spectrum of uh, topics that you want your journal to cover. Expertise from different countries. So, you know, different countries. uh, I I don't want everyone there to be just from one country or even just from one or two continents. I want to have diversity of countries. I also thought that if we have so many papers of machine learnings that are coming from China and India, we should have people on our editorial board and also so associate, associate editors that are from these countries because they are also sensitive to some of the the things that are written there and they, they can give better advice to the writers even when they reject or when they follow a paper through several rounds of revision of improving the paper. Sometimes they need to explain things that are culturally sensitive. So I, I want to have diversity also in the countries. Another aspect is industry versus universities versus hospitals, for example. I want to have people in from all of these sectors. And also seniority, so not just full professors, but also younger scientists that are very good. Uh, all, all of the people on our editorial board have published uh, in the journal several papers and have acted as reviewers for several papers. So they are, you know, they're not knowledgeable and they understand the policies and the aims and the scope. But we don't just take very senior. So we have equity and diversity in many, many different respects. Your second question about how can information systems or computer science work together with with health and also uh, increase the fairness. I think that, you know, AI is a great tool to detect areas when there is no fairness. So when there is bias, bias in data sets, bias in the language in which we explain the results. So we need uh, the results to be explainable, not only to professionals, but to the public, to people with different backgrounds and different health literacy. 
Thank you so much more for the work that you are doing for JBI. Amazing work. And uh, one of the things I, I really admire about you is how versatile you are. You're able to collaborate with people from U.S., but also in Europe. You're equally active in both spaces, which is very rare. I wanted to talk to you about your latest work funded by the European Union, and I'm referring to your past project, Guy, but the recent one, Capable. And both projects have a very strong focus on narrowing the gaps between clinical guidelines and patient needs. So are there any improvements in personalizing clinical guidelines to patient needs that you have facilitated making or new changes that you would like to happen? Yeah, thank you for the, for this question. Uh, so Mobiguide, I was the the coordinator of this large uh, collaboration. It was like 13 different uh, organizations uh, and maybe 60 people worked together on this uh, project. And it went for four years and the, the idea was that we wanted to uh, provide decision support anytime, everywhere to patients and to their care providers. So before Mobiguide, to me, the focus was always on the caregivers, the care providers, sorry. And now the focus uh, started to become, since 2011 for me, on patients and the people that uh, need to help the patients. So clearly the, the healthcare professionals, also caregivers. Of course, it's not one size fits all and I wanted to personalize the decision support. So in Mobiguide, the personalization was uh, related to the patient's uh, context. I had a student, Adif Fuchs, and he was working with me and uh, Pnina Soffer, one of the um, um, professors in, in our department. And he, uh, he said the following thing, that patients, we don't want to, they don't want to really think of themselves as patients. They want to lead their normal daily lives. And sometimes all these medications and all these tests, they're really hurting their ability to lead normal lives. So maybe they can negotiate with the doctor and maybe they can be more lenient with what they're asking them. For example, if you go on vacation, maybe you don't need to monitor your blood glucose every day, four times a day or your blood pressure every day. Maybe you can do it every once every two days. So with that, he, he went to interview patients and, and, and doctors, and he read the literature, and we looked at all these different aspects that uh, define your personal context and which could influence decision support. The patients thought like a D, like the student, but the doctors actually, when they said, oh, a person on vacation, we have to be extra careful because he actually can be compromising his health. Uh, so instead of having him, the patient, uh, measure blood pressure every day, he needs to measure twice a day. <laughs> So it didn't work exactly in the, the best way we, we hoped. But there were cases in which they said, yes, we, we can be more lenient if we see that the patient is monitoring uh, themselves very well and also 
they are within the bounds. So the different results of the monitoring show that they're, they're in good health. Then we can be lenient and then we can say, okay, it doesn't have to be every day. It can be maybe three times a week. So that was in, in MobiGuide. We also personalized there the, the timing of the reminders and, and little things like that. Then my collaborator, Silvana Coaglini from University of Pavia, and she was one of the key partners, uh, as was uh, Yuval Shacha in, in MobiGuide. So Silvana proposed the Capable project, and she's the coordinator, and I'm one of the PIs in that project. And we're now started starting the fourth and final year already with patients. There, the personalization is different. We are focusing on cancer patients, and we want to improve their well-being. So it's not only pharmaceutical, uh, you know, drugs that we're giving to patients. It's also their mental well-being. And to influence their mental well-being, like, you know, anxiety, depression, stress, many effective evidence-based therapies are non-pharmacological. They involve things like mindfulness, exercise-based yoga, tai chi, positive psychology. They're still evidence-based, but they're not drugs. And the difficult part about it is how can you form these exercises into a habit? Something you never did, like uh, deep breathing or Tai Chi, and you have to now do it every day. So there are behavioral theories, and we're using uh, behavioral theory of BJ Fogg. He says that in order to develop a habit, three things need to co-occur. One is that you need to be motivated enough to do the new habit. And the second thing is you have to have the capability. So if we want you to do Tai Chi for 40 minutes, maybe you cannot do it, but maybe five minutes you can do. And the third thing is a trigger that will remind you to do the habit over and over and over again. And, you know, maybe at a specific time time window that co-occurs, let's say 7 p.m. every day, or right after you wake up, or right before you go to bed, or after you brush your teeth, or when you drink your first coffee. And what we're trying to do is use machine learning to try to personalize the trigger to the individual preferences to patients. Sometimes we can ask the patients about preferences, and sometimes we can learn them from data that is generated by their wearables, like the smartwatch or the smartphone. So I've been working with um, Shimon Wilk and Aneta Lisowska from University of Poznan, and we published a lot in, in that area in the past two years. The other part of your question is uh, also about uh, challenges. So what are the new challenges that I, I think I would like to address or like other people to address? So I think forming these uh, good health habits by people like myself, it's not that difficult. And people like myself are, they have health literacy, they have uh, high socioeconomic sectors. But what about the, the people who are really suffering more? They're less educated, low socioeconomic status. Maybe they are in a culture that doesn't understand much about what constitutes good health. And maybe it clashes with other cultures elements like you're supposed to eat a lot of cakes in, in parties and always to drink sweet drinks or, or things that are not healthy for them. What can I do to help them? And not just me. I mean, it's, it's many people need to, to help there. So these are big, big challenges. I really wish a lot of people would work on. 
Yeah, these are great examples that give us some hope that in the future, with all this learning health system in place, then this continuous feedback loop can help us to get to the next level of healthcare, which we need to move the needle from healthcare post disease diagnosis to prevention. Yes, that's great. Yeah, but for some of our audience who might not be familiar with the idea of learning health system, certainly this is the time when the cloud computing and EHR and other technical protocol like fire standards being available. So it seems that there is a growing trend here for health system to start growing their learning health system within their organization. And then it's finally the time to do it or start doing this in a more mature way. So, so for our audience here, can you introduce a little bit more about mm-hmm. the concept here? And are there anything that you think our audience can learn about, about new application area to help to realize yeah. its potential? Yeah, thanks, Sabrina. I, I would use this uh, opportunity to explain. So if you have a, a process or, uh, or a system and it can be open looped, you know, not a loop, an open process that you, you just start with the input, do the process, get an output. So suppose you have even a, a clinical guideline that you want to implement because it was, it is based on evidence-based medicine. And you say, okay, I'm going to my healthcare system. I'm going to implement this uh, guideline by implementing some rules that will check parts of the guideline. Let's say there is, uh, if the person is older than 50, they should get a colonoscopy. So you implement that rule. It feeds the input data of the, you know, the, the birth dates of everyone. And when someone reaches 50, he will get a rule that fires for him and he will get a reminder in uh, his email, you know, go do the colonoscopy. So this is kind of an, an open process. There's no loop. To close the loop, you need to see if it's effective. So how many people received this reminder and how many people acted upon it? And you do a a controlled, you look at this, maybe you you look at people who did not get the reminder, people did look, and you see, you compare, and you see if it's effective or not. And when you see that something is not working, you have a chance to improve it. So you close the loop. You you have hypothesis about why is it not working? Is it because it's not a good recommendation? Is it because you didn't motivate the people well enough or you didn't motivate it according to their uh, beliefs of what is important to them? Or maybe you demanded something that was too difficult and maybe you can say, okay, you're afraid of colonoscopy, that you can tell uh, if someone has in, in the excretions, if they have blood, it, it is also a marker that something that someone can have colon cancer. So you can do a different test. So you can figure out kind of uh, what is wrong in the process by analyzing the data. So if you collect data from about the input, about the output of, of the process, do different types of statistics, you look at the standard that you want to reach. Do you want um, 80% of the people to comply or 50% of the people to comply? What do you wish for? And what should the standard be? And 
all these different parts you can change. You can learn how to change part of your system so that it operates better. And you learn how to do it by analyzing the data that you gather about the process. And you do it for all the processes that, that you have in your healthcare institution. But the important thing is that you need to have the data in in a standard way. And the data needs to contain a, a lot of metadata, I will explain what I mean, uh, and a lot of semantics. So suppose that you, you get uh, a number and this number says glucose 100. You need to know a lot of things more than the glucose 100. To which person does it belong? Is it an average over one week or is it a fasting blood glucose? Or is it uh, just, uh, was it collected from, uh, you know, poking the finger? Or, or is it uh, some in, in, in a different way? And what exactly is this uh, blood glucose? And in what date was it uh, collected? Uh, a, a lot of metadata that you need to store. And you need to store it in a way that when you share the data to a different organization, because you want to do statistics on on much uh, larger uh, population that comes from several hospitals, everyone understands what the data is all about. And for that standards, standards organization like Health Level 7, developed uh, standards of EHR data. So standards like FHIR, F-H-I-R, and there are other standards uh, from OpenHR, which is a standard that uh, comes from, uh, you know, Europe, Australia. It's not uh, an American uh, organization. They're different standards, but uh, all of them share the, the fact that they, they have different classes of healthcare data, like observations about the patients, uh, medications given to the patients, and procedures that are done to the patients. Or for each of these classes, they have the different attributes, like the time step, the, the vocabulary code that stands for the topic that uh, the data item stands for, the patient who data is about, and things like that. The result, you know, what is the result and the units of measure. So, of course, we have to have standards and they, they really help in the learning healthcare system because you can analyze the data, not just by looking at it as numbers, but as uh, uh, objects that have uh, meaning and, and semantics. And there are many standards that also help. There is a standard like tripod standard and data federation and sharing standards and standards for medical images that, incre- that exist. So f- by using them and having uh, different devices and different software that can all, all share the same kind of data, they all know how to read and how to visualize the same and, and to process the same kind of data, we can have this learning health system be very wide so that it can be about a national uh, gathered data or international gathered data. So in COVID, we, we learned to, to collaborate between governments and to collect and share data and insights in order to, before we had the immunization, there were other measures that we could do to help not spread the disease and to know when you can release a little bit and when you have to tell uh, people to stay home, tell children not to go to school. All of this is part of this uh, learning health system and standards are an important part of having the data being meaningful to different organizations. 
So that's wonderful about learning about health system. But how about evaluation? What did you think about health AI evaluation in those systems? Are any good examples you can share with us? Yes, I think a, a good example is uh, a paper that is by uh, Ken Kawamoto and uh, co-authors. He's the senior author. It was published in the Journal of Biomedical Informatics in 2022 and uh, entitled Evaluation in Lifecycle of Information Technology Framework, so Illicit Framework, Supporting the Innovation Lifecycle from Business Case Assessment to Summative Evaluation. So while it does not specifically have to do with AI, I think this is a very good paper to, to read. And the ideas behind there can be applied to any kind of uh, research in, that have to do with information technology. So I, I really recommend it. I also recommend our editorial, the editorial that uh, we wrote in JBI on machine learning. So I will provide the link. And you asked for a good example. So there is a paper by Godino, BJ Fogg, and, and others that was published in Lancet Diabetes Endocrinology in 2016. And it is about Project Smart, social and mobile tools for weight loss. I think they did a beautiful study where they, they implemented a mobile health system to try to uh, help patients lose weight. And they evaluated for over a period of 18 months to see if the impact is uh, lasting. And it's, it's really beautifully done and beautifully written. So I highly recommend that. And maybe one last thing is that Tripod is, um, it stands for Transparent Reporting of a Multivariable prediction model for individual prognosis. So I also recommend reading about that standard. Great. Yeah, that has what we are recommending for our AI evaluation showcase for this year's AMIA as well. We will provide the link with others. Link you just mentioned. Well, we have arrived to the end of the podcast. So you have made it so entertaining more. So thank you so much. <laughs> A lot of uh, wonderful stories that you share and most important, you know, all the details about your journey that I, I think the audience will, will enjoy and we connect with those. So we want to thank you for spending this time with us. Uh, we wanted to give you the opportunity if you have any final words or thoughts that you want to share with our audience. Yeah, so thank you very much for allowing me to have this opportunity. I think don't be afraid to do things that you think are important and that uh, motivate you and and make you feel needed and, and important and impactful. And find the way to do it through collaborations, through trying out new things, and hopefully, you know, publish it in in JBI, but also in in anything you any good journal that uh, can reach the audience and and make an influence on on people in our world such a lovely story thank you yes so much. it was awesome more <laughs> always thank you for listening to today's episode acm bycast is a production of the association for computing machineries practitioners board and amias for your informatics is a production of women in amia to learn more about ACM, visit acm.org. And to learn more about AMIA, visit amia.org. For more information about this and other episodes, please visit learning.acm.org slash B-Y-T-E-C-A-S-T. 
and for AMIA's For Your Informatics podcast, visit the news tab on amia.org.